Well, good morning, Valley Point Church. It is so good to be back here uh, with you this morning. I really appreciated the worship. It was beautiful and, and for what's happening. My prayers will be for the next director of worship. And I just really appreciate the gift of hospitality that you extend to me. I feel like an ex officio member of this church. And, and that is a gift, friends, that is so powerful, and it really allows people to feel like they belong, right? Feel like they belong. I feel like I belong at Valley Point Church. And that feeling is because of the leadership setting the model, right? Setting the tone, the model for what it means to be a church. And so for Pastor Eric and his wife, Tanya, and the, the leadership team, they set the model of what it means to belong and what it means to grow together. You know, sometimes we confuse it a little bit in Christianity, at least I think. We focus so much on you have to believe all the right things before you belong. And I'm always amazed at Jesus when he calls his first disciples, he does not give them a multiple choice exam. Although maybe a few of them could have used one, maybe. He doesn't say, believe these things first. What does he say? Follow me, belong to me, be in relationship with me, and you will grow into belief. That's a beautiful thing about Valley Point Church. You can belong before you believe, because we're always growing in our belief. So this is a wonderful disposition of the church. It's wonderful, and I, I just find that so refreshing to be part of this uh, congregation ex officio. As you know, Pastor Eric and his wife Tanya uh, have blessed Eastern University by sending not one, but two of their children, right? Their daughter Clarice graduated in 2019, and if I'm not mistaken, I see their son Chandler, who's going to be a rising sophomore, if I'm not mistaken, in the fall. And I just want to ask you, have you been stretching and working out a little bit? Because he's also on track and field. So I was asked by your coach to make sure. <laughs> All right. So, you know, we'll talk later. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So, you know, Pastor Eric has loved Eastern University, as I have loved Valley, For uh, Valley Point Church. You have loved Eastern, and thank you so much for your support over the years. I oftentimes get an opportunity to teach a class on the introduction to the New Testament, which means we go over the books from Matthew to Revelation. And I can remember distinctly a few years back, um, after the first class of the semester, a young man came up to me afterwards and said, uh, Dr. Modica, can I just ask you a question? I said, certainly. He said, you know, I grew up in a Christian household and went to church all my life, which is a blessing. And I just, have, I just know the teachings of Jesus so well. I really understand all of his teachings, and I can't understand why I would have to be required to take a class with you at the university on the teachings of Jesus. Now, I thought, well, what a very insightful question. I mean, maybe part of it is my teaching, but maybe part of it is, Right? Sometimes we have been exposed to the teachings of Jesus over and over and over and over again. They become very familiar. And that's not a bad thing, but sometimes it loses its shock value when things become familiar. Or as the scholar A.J. Levine says about the parables of Jesus, she says, 
we domesticate. We domesticate the parables. We kind of tame them, right? Like a lion tamer. We just want to take Jesus' teaching and take the edge off of it, or maybe just say we're familiar with it so we know what Jesus meant. Friends, I'm, I've been studying the New Testament for many years, and there are days I still don't know what Jesus meant. I'm still growing into learning about what it means to follow Jesus faithfully in this world. One of the things about Jesus' teaching that I want you to embrace on the front end before we actually talk about one of his teachings in a parable is the concept of paradox, paradox. Let me put up the definition of paradox. Let me read you the definition because it's important because I think Jesus is a paradoxical teacher. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. A paradox. Think about some of Jesus' teachings that you're familiar with. If you want to be great, you have to be least. If you want to find your life, you have to lose it first. Or, to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a child. Isn't that interesting? Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I couldn't wait to become an adult. I would count the years to like, Oh, 16, I can get a learner's permit. That's a real significant milestone. You know, 18, I can vote. You know, 21, and so forth and so on, right? At this age, in my age now, I don't do that any longer. But I have grandchildren. It's wonderful. I have a granddaughter, Olivia. She's going to be eight years old in August. But you know how old she is? Seven and a half. Constantly reminds me, Grandpa... It's, I'm seven and a half, I'm not seven, if I happen to make a mistake. Wow. Isn't it interesting, this paradox, that Jesus sometimes really flips many of the things we think we know clearly and flips it over. I think the master of the paradox, believe it or not, is the late comedian George Carlin, who died in 2008. George Carlin, comedian, I believe he was a master of the paradox, because he looked at words and phrases, and he began to see the inherent paradox, but yet how true those phrases or words were. So listen to some paradoxes. I'm going to just read a few. These are Carlinisms, I'll call them, but just listen to these. Why do we drive on a parkway and park in a driveway? You've been doing it all your life. If all the world is a stage, where is the audience sitting? Is a vegetarian permitted to eat animal crackers? Have you thought about that? Why do they place an expiration date on a sour cream container? Hold on to that. If you ate pasta and antipasta, would you still be hungry? Is there another word for synonym? And then lastly, a Carlinism. If the number two pencil is the most popular, why is it still number two? 
Well, that's for George Carlin. <laughs> George Carlin. Well, we live with these paradoxes, friends, every day. But we may not always be mindful of the paradox, even though we do it each and every day. This morning, I want to just take a little time in this wonderful series on the Jesus Creed, this book by Scott McKnight, who is a friend and a collaborator, wonderful New Testament scholar, someone who can write for the academy and also the church, a scholar who went to school, brilliant, but can write for the academy and the church. Not every scholar that I have come across can do that well, and Scott McKnight does that well. His book is the Jesus Creed, and this is what he's trying to accomplish in this book. This is what uh, McKnight is trying to accomplish. He wants to ask the question, what was Jesus' definition of spiritual formation or faith development? What was Jesus' definition, right? We always ask for a lot of other definitions. For instance, I'll give you my working definition. It comes from Robert Mahalan of Asbury Theological Seminary. I'll give you a definition that we actually have on the university's website that we quote and use on spiritual formation. Listen to the definition, right? Spiritual formation is a process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others, period. That's a beautiful definition about spiritual formation. It's a process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. It's a definition that we use. But Scott McKnight in his book, Jesus Creed, wanted to focus in on what was Jesus' definition of spiritual formation. What a novel idea. It's, it's really good to ask Jesus what he thought, so to speak, rather than us coming up with our own mission statement or this statement. And, and those are appropriate. But So McKnight said he believed that it was embedded in Mark chapter 12, this thing called the Jesus Creed, which I just want to read just briefly. It's the scripture, Mark 12. And we could put that on. Thank you. Jesus answered. He's answering an expert in the law who's asking him about what's most important. The first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Shema. And I think Pastor Eric spoke about the Shema a number of weeks ago. The Shema being the creedal statement of Israel found in Deuteronomy 6. So, and then you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no uh, greater commandment than these. Wow. The Jesus Creed, and, and McKnight makes the case that he believed that the earliest followers of Jesus repeated this creed, right, each and every day to remind themselves of how they are to align their lives with the creed. And simply, friends, you know, Christianity, we have really complicated matters at times. I know I have, right? Christianity is very simply, at its core fundamentals, loving God, and loving our neighbor. But not just our neighbor, but loving our neighbor as ourself. It's loving God with our totality and loving our neighbor as ourself. Now, it's simple and it can be stressful and difficult, and that's why we need to be a community, right? We need the church, we need Pastor Eric and, and Tanya, we need leadership, we need people to help us along the way. Because some days we really, really love God, but unfortunately that neighbor is really a problem, right? 
Sometimes, you know, we would say, neighbor not really happy about what's going on, especially the phrase, as yourself. Now, I have two neighbors for the last 25 years we've lived in the same home. We have Rose, who's a widow, and she lives on, to our, our, on the right side, and then Joel and Jane, wonderful couple, retired, live on our left, and we live in the middle. And I think I love them. I say hi to them when I see them. If somebody places a piece of mail in my mailbox that belongs to either Rose or Jane or Joel, I deliver it to them. But to be honest with you, do I love them as myself? I'm still working on that. Am I sacrificing? Am I looking out for their best interests, which I would like for myself? So those commandments, we need help. And this morning, one of the ways we can be helped by this is uh, McKnight has in chapter 14, let's go to there, he calls it a society of mustard seed. Mustard seed. Now, growing up, I'll be honest with you, um, I grew up, I was born in Brooklyn, went to school in Brooklyn, we migrated over to Queens, that was a big migration, going west. Uh, I don't know much about seeds. I didn't grow up with an agricultural bent. You know, I know asphalt, I know concrete, I know what a bridge looks like. I've been, I went to school taking subways and buses. I don't know. So for me, even as a New Testament specialist, I had to work hard in trying to understand the teachings of Jesus in which he connects with nature and common things for the people there. Also, too, I had a disposition to be against mustard, just simply against mustard, because my father growing up, would not allow mustard to be placed on the dinner table at all. He just had a, an aversion, we'll say. And I like mustard on hot dogs. I can't put ketchup. It's got to be mustard. But I don't know where that came. It must have we snuck the mustard when my father wasn't looking. But the point being, the point being is that Jesus is going to be using a parable to show us what it means to be a society of mustard seeds. So let's Let's first find out what a parable is. We'll read Matthew 13, and I'll make some observations. So let's go to the next slide. This is a great definition of what a parable is. Now, Jesus taught in parables, not only in parables, but a majority of his teachings, and you know some of these parables, don't you know? The parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The parable of the lost or the prodigal son, the parable of the lost sheep. Right? You know these, you, you, right, right. the coin, the lost coin, all, all these parables Jesus is teaching. So here's the definition of a parable by C.H. Dodd. He's a very dapper looking guy, right? That's one thing you have to, these British scholars of the 20th century, dapper, dapper. You almost, you almost believe everything you put up there just by the way he's standing like that. Okay, follow along here. Now at its simplest, a parable is a metaphor or simile, simile drawn from nature or common life, making a comparison to something you're familiar with, arresting the hearer, however, by its vividness or even strangeness, and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. The latter part of that definition, Fred, is really important because sometimes people would think every parable has just one meaning to it or one application. Let me say this, I think when Jesus was teaching large crowds and taught in a parable, people connected differently depending on where they were in their own life with God, how they connected, what they gained from it, what they were confused by it. 
I mean, his disciples are sometimes confused about why even Jesus taught in parables. Many of the disciples couldn't understand it. But the reason why Jesus taught in parables is because he was trying to show us something. And I hope that you gain a little bit of that this morning. It was about the kingdom of God. That's what makes Jesus' parables unique. Unlike any other teacher, because Jesus didn't invent the parable. That was something Jesus incorporated, right? Parables go all the way back to Aesop. Aesop's fables back 400 years before the coming of Jesus. There were parable teachings genre. So Jesus takes this genre, and what's uniquely unique about Jesus is that he puts the spin, so to speak, on the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, depending on which gospel writer you're reading, but interchangeably. Jesus is trying to show us about the kingdom. Do you know that we're citizens of the kingdom? If you have a relationship with Jesus this morning, even though you may be an American citizen or, or maybe in another, another country or dual citizenship, you also, we're all citizens of the World Wide Web. We're all global citizens. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you could send an email and somebody from around the world can get back to you. Amazing. But as Christians, we are also what? We're citizens of the kingdom of God on earth. We are. And guess who the king is? Jesus. It's a pretty straightforward answer, right? Jesus. And what I want you to see, friends, that parables help us navigate our, our, our multiple citizenships. Parables help to navigate our multiple citizenship because I don't want you to ever think that your national citizenship, citizenship or your global citizenship and your kingdom citizenship are all equal. Like you just, you know, conflate them. And No, 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 no. Let me say this unequivocally. Our kingdom citizenship should always take priority. You could be grateful for your national citizenship, which I am. You could be grateful that you could have the World Wide Web and have connections with people literally around the world. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus... We are to be kingdom citizens first. Not in a triumphalistic way. I'm not talking about aggressiveness or doing imposing things on people. We got to be like mustard seeds. That's what McKnight's chapter is talking about. A society of these small mustard seeds. Remember the Lord's Prayer, which we prayed beautifully this morning. I love the Lord's Prayer. I'm so encouraged that you pray it every week. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? We want the kingdom to become fully present. There's a great Jewish saying about the kingdom uh, is that it's the place where heaven and earth kiss. The kingdom is the place where heaven and earth kiss in the Jewish tradition. Isn't that beautiful? What we're trying to do here as we live on this earth, we're trying to not force the kingdom. We're not trying to impose the kingdom. We're trying to live out the kingdom in which God has given to us in small ways, in larger ways, so that heaven and earth kiss with each other. So we work for justice. We work for people becoming whole in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We work to love our neighbor. We, learn, we work towards caring for one another, so forth and so on. Isn't that a beautiful, where heaven and earth kiss? So this morning, I'm just going to take a couple of minutes here to look at a parable. It's a short one, two verses, um, but it's a very impactful one to me. And if you have your Bibles, it's on, in Matthew chapter 13, 
Matthew 13, and it's called the parable of the mustard seed. It's actually in verses 31 and 32. I'll read the parable. I'll make a couple of comments, and then we'll draw some, hopefully, applications, some things to think about. So here's the parable. Then Jesus, he, Jesus, put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the field, in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches." the parable of the mustard seed. You find this also in Mark's gospel and also in Luke's gospel. So it's in the three gospels, not in John's gospel, but in the, in the, in the synoptic gospels, as we call it. And it's the mustard seed. Let's show some pictures of a mustard seed, right? Like I said, I was born in Brooklyn, so seeds, you know, there you go. You can see it on the left, but look how small. It's a small seed. And what could it turn into? Take a look at the next page. What it can do over time and over cultivation, it becomes a shrub, uh, a tree-like shrub that birds can fly in and build nesting. All right? Do you get the sense of this parable? The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. So what does, what does it mean? Well, we know that Matthew was an original disciple of Jesus. He puts Jesus in... Uh, in a, as the teacher of Israel. So Matthew wants to ha- show us that Jesus is teaching us something about the kingdom. And Matthew, being an original disciple, helps us along the way because Matthew was certainly there. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 has, it's all parables. And if we had time, we would look at this like six or so different parables in one chapter. Jesus is teaching over and over again. Right? They say repetition is a good form of teaching. And all of these about the kingdom. Like, okay, the kingdom of God is like the pearl of great pride. The kingdom is like a net. The kingdom is this. The kingdom is that. Right? And then the mustard seed. Just keep thinking. That's what Jesus is probably telling his disciples. Just keep thinking with me about what this kingdom looks like. So what do, what do we mean by the kingdom of mustard seed? Right? What do we mean? Well, Let me just make some observations of the text Uh, again. If we just put up the the scripture text of Matthew 13, then I'll wrap up. Right? So think about this. First of all, the kingdom of, of heaven is like this small seed. And we know what happens to the seed when it's cultivated and patiently grown. It grows. And it takes someone to take it and to sow it, meaning to obviously put it in the ground, right? And, and sow it everywhere, right? Because mustard seeds are hard to track. You just throw them out there, and they're going. They're going places, so to speak. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and so forth. And what I love about this parable, which I think I want you to capture this, is that the goal of the mustard seed, it seems to me, if I'm trying to wrap my mind on the strangeness of this, is not just to become big, but also to invite others, to welcome others like birds and build nests, right? Birds, and not just the birds that can take advantage of the growth of this little mustard seed, but also a nest, which then we have eggs and we have more birds and and so forth and so on. 
Isn't that a beautiful image? That it's not just about growth in a numerical sense or in a kind of metrics that just takes it like a calculator. It's about also welcoming these birds of the air. Come and make nests, make their home in its branches. So what does it mean to be a society of mustard seed, a people of mustard? Well, let me give you three observations uh, from McKnight, but I also will add my own little kind of nuance. So we'll put those up. This is what I'll leave you with as a conclusion. Three things, three observations. So the first one is really interesting, isn't it? The mustard seed sprouts among the unlikely. I oftentimes tell, my, tell students at Eastern, especially when they're going on a missions trip, that God has already gone before you. God's already there. It's not like you're bringing Jesus with you. Like, okay, we're going on a mission trip from Eastern University, Christian University. Oh, I'm going to bring Jesus. Okay, plop him here, and now we'll get... No, 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 God's, God's already there. You're, you're coming... You know, be, be aware of the mustard seeds. Be aware at places that it sprouts in unlikely places. Right? When I was a college student back in the 70s, not the 1870s, my kids remind me, but in the 1970s, I was a manager of a Queen's delicatessen on the weekends. That's how we made money, I guess, you know? You work and you go to school. And so uh, Queen's Deli in the 1970s was really interesting. We were open late, you know, a busy intersection. And we had this fella by the name of Steve that would come in regularly. I wasn't even sure where he lived, wasn't sure what he did. All he wanted to do is buy Heineken beer. That was his goal, right? He'd walk in, go up into the, you know, the, the refrigerated case and get his beer, pay for it, and that's how he lived his day. And Steve was an interesting dresser. Um, he would wear a leather, kind of leather vest, but no shirt, right? So it was really quite interesting. And I was working behind the deli with my apron. So Steve always stuck out, you know, he had a beard, kind of curly hair. Hey, Joe, how you doing? Come and get his Heineken. And that would be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And you know, I tried to talk to Steve. Hey, what are you doing with your life? Whatever. But it, everything, you know, crowded, people getting cold cuts and everything. And, but Steve was always happy, Maybe because he was intoxicated a lot. I don't know. He was just so always happy, always waving to people. But he got his Heineken beer and left. So, well, I didn't work in the delicatessen. Once I graduated college, left the delicatessen, got married. We, we, my wife and I lived in Queens for a while. And so we were attending church, which is a good thing to do Sunday mornings, I guess. That's what we were doing. And we were in the upper balcony of the church, and we were sitting in the first row of the balcony, which had this guardrail, and then the sanctuary and the worship and so forth. And as we're worshiping, my wife and I were singing choruses and hymns. I get a tap on the shoulder from behind. And I'm thinking, oh, no, maybe I sat in somebody's seat. Maybe I dropped something out of my pocket. So I turned around and did a quick glance. I don't know if you ever did that, where you're not really sure of the person and he just kind of went back and worshiping. That's always a good thing, you know, worship, avoid people. No. Uh, until, he, until I got another tap. Now I'm thinking we're in our third song. I better go. Really, and I look over. And lo and behold, it's Steve with a shirt on. But it's Steve. It's Steve about four rows back 
Next, his, there's a woman next to him with a small child. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I haven't seen Stephen four or five years. And I'm just, you know, I don't know now. Now I'm not worshiping. I'm just thinking. I'm going to have to turn around to speak to Stephen. I wonder what happened. Like, why is he here? Who let him in? That was my, honestly. And does he have beer with him? I don't know how he got in. Well, the service ends. Steve comes up and gives me a hug, which I, I, you know, I hadn't seen him and just knew me from the deli. He said, Joe, someone, I, can't, I became a Christian a few years ago, a couple years ago, and now I'm a missionary to Spain. Meet my wife and our two or three-year-old son. I thought, oh my God, Steve is a Christian? That's impossible. Well, at least I, you know, I said, but no mustard seeds, the seeds sprout among the unlikely. It really convinced me to be more aware of how the kingdom of God surprises us in small little ways, and it can grow. Now Steve is a missionary in Spain, and that seed has become a shrub, and birds are placing a building nest in there. It's interesting. The second one is that the mustard seed spreads from person to person. Well, let's be honest. I don't know about you, but I don't know many people who come to Christ via Twitter or email. Uh, I got a persuasive email. I'm going to give my life to Christ. I, I don't know. Not the emails I send. You'll never come to Christ. Because, you know, it's not that I say anything inflammatory, but it's just an email. You know, the meeting's at 4 o'clock. Oh, Come to Jesus moment. No, I don't think so. Right? Or even Facebook. I don't know. Maybe people. I, I don't know. I don't want to be. Instagram. Oh, I saw it. I became. You know what it is? It's person to person. It's person to person. It was interesting. One of our students at Eastern, not Chandler, but one of our students during the pandemic was saying to me, Dr. Modica, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pivot back in person. Like, oh, but I was comforting, I think. I said, well, you've been in person more than we've been in a pandemic in your life, so I think you'll, it's like riding a bicycle. You'll learn how to pivot back in person. We'll be together and so forth. It is person to person. You're mustard seed people. I'm a, we are a society. We are to do things person to person. When I was in graduate school, I was involved in a pretty serious car accident that landed me in the hospital not one month, not two months, but three months I was in the hospital. They were going to name the room after me. No, they, I had to donate money, but I, I, I donated my time there. I broke my hip, and it kept me in skeletal traction. And back in the days before they replaced hips, they put, it's like the cartoon. You, you had your leg up and with the weights, and the rest is history. So I was a graduate student at the time, and word got out on campus. One of our students was in an accident, and I was expecting visitors. I was becoming selfish. I thought, hey, I'm not going anywhere for three months. Come and visit Joe. Bring things. Expensive things. Um, you know what? Weeks went by, and like my friends who are in biblical studies, right? We're studying about Jesus on a graduate level. Where are they? Nobody's coming. People from English, they're coming. PhD students for me. Liturgical studies. Uh, until the day, it was late in the afternoon one day, I woke up, 
I woke up after a deep sleep, one of those afternoon sleeps when you don't sleep the night before in a hospital and you're on so many medications, you're not sure what year it is. So I woke up and there was, there was a, 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 a student from biblical studies right next to the bed, Tae Young, a wonderful Korean guy. And he was standing just looking down at me, holding a balloon. Get well soon. Now, I came out of a stupor. I thought, all right, I'm dead. I died. It's really going to, I mean, this is what happened. Okay, it's get well, and it seems like a nice place, heaven. But no, I wasn't dead. And, and he, st he stayed only a few minutes. His English was, was okay, but he just wanted me to know he was there, person to person. So he left. He tied the balloon uh, on my, my uh, bed rail, and he left. And then the nurse said, because I got to know the nurses, almost like best friends. After, she said, Joe, he wouldn't leave. I mean, what do you mean he wouldn't leave? He waited two hours, and he wouldn't sit. He waited two hours with the balloon looking over you because he wanted you to know he came to visit. Listen, I'm a university chaplain. I don't know about Pastor Eric's uh, hospital habits, but I ain't waiting two hours, generally speaking, right, when I come to visit somebody, generally speaking. Right, there's always, a, like, if I come to visit somebody and they're in a deep sleep and they need their rest, I'll wait. 15, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, that's, and, and then I'll leave a note. Dear Bob, I'm sorry I missed you, but I'll come back and, you know, pray. I, I always pray regardless. But two hours? Tae Young, that was over 35 years ago. I remember as it was yesterday because it was a mustard seed experience spreading from what? One person to another. You couldn't have done that with an email couldn't have done it with Instagram. He stood with the balloon waiting for me to wake up so that he knew, that I knew that he was there. Last but not least, a mustard seed grows patiently and peaceably. It's hard to be patient. I know I have Amazon Prime. It's unbelievable. But that, when that thing doesn't come exactly, oh my, my, it's as if you know, the world's going to come to an end. Where's my package? Where are my pens? Where's my shirt? My shirt. Because we're in a society that we like, you know, the one click, right? We want the click. We want the, the right? that's fine. But you know, the kingdom of God, you have to be patient to see the, pro, uh, the production. We have to see the growth. I like the book by Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene Peterson who translated the message. This is the title of the book on discipleship. A long road of obedience in the same direction. A long road of obedience in the same direction. That's what it means to be a mustard seed person. It's a long road. Being a Christian, following Jesus, it takes time. And some days it's so slow and it's cumbersome. And it may even be monotonous and I don't know. And, but, it's, but it's obedience in the same direction. And that's what it means to see the kingdom of God as a mustard seed person. And it needs to be peacefully. I'll, I'll say this. The kingdom of God never works when you impose it on a people group or a person. It never works well. Right? Think about the Inquisition in the 12th century when the church was punishing heretics. Or the Crusades. Talk about a paradox. They called it 
the holy crusades, where they were killing people. 11 and 12 centuries where there were war fa- warring between Christians and Muslims, right? What I'm saying is it never works when we do it forcibly. The kingdom of God is about peace. It's about blessed are the peacemakers for they are children of God. It's about following the prince of peace, Jesus. And it's about understanding that it is because of this peace We offer peace to others by our actions, by our words. What metrics do we use for spiritual growth? What do you you use when you think of spiritual development, spiritual growth? I think about that often. Yes, we do take chapel attendance, even though it's voluntary, but we like to see numbers, right? We we, we love to see like we had 80 one week, but now we have the... But you know what, friends? I'll be honest with you. That counts for something, but I wouldn't want to put all my eggs in one basket. Because Richard Forster, in his, his celebrated book called The Celebration of Discipline, probably a, 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 a classic in its own right, his first line says, in society, we don't need more talented people, friends. Richard Forster said, we need more deep people. We need deep people. Right? We don't need people with longer resumes. We need people with deeper resumes. It's not about doing all the things and getting all the certificates. It's about being a person of integrity, a person of love, a person of compassion. See, mustard seed growth is often surprising, slow, and deliberate. But it grows, but it's slow, deliberate, and surprising. It's amazing where Jesus shows up. I always think of Steve, where Jesus shows up demonstrates that we are to be a society of mustard seed people helping in the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. And may that faithfulness be something we do in the small things that we do for our neighbor, for our friends, for our family. It's the small things. You don't need a theological education. Don't think like, well, I haven't gone to seminary. That's okay. I'm a proponent of education. You don't need a a theological degree. Let me just say this. You have everything you need right now to be a society of mustard seed people. You have everything. There's nothing Pastor Eric could give you or myself. or You have it. Now, the question is, are you going to sow it? Are you going to enact on it? But you have everything available to serve God, to love God, and to serve others through being a mustard seed. Pray with me as I end. Lord, we thank you for your teaching. And we thank you for parables that help to give us, at times, some strange ways of thinking, but also some vivid ideas about what it means to follow you. Help us, Lord, to be people who are mustard seed, people that are a society committed to loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.